everyone, this is Camille. And this is Jessica. And we're really excited to put out this fourth episode of our show, Word. Word is a podcast we started this summer to talk about race in Canada. Find more at soundcloud.com slash wordpod, where you can also find the link to our episodes on iTunes. Enjoy. My name is Jagmeet Singh, and I'm a member of provincial parliament in Ontario, representing Bramley Gormalton. And I'm also the deputy leader of Ontario's NDP. Okay, thanks so much for being here, Jagmeet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you were born, um, your upbringing, and uh, how you got to be where you are in politics. Sure. First, I have to say thank you for pronouncing my name so correctly. I really appreciate that. Makes me feel warm. Of course, yeah. (laughs) And so I was born in Scarborough. And about a year later, I was actually shipped to Punjab. And so I lived in Punjab. My first language was actually Punjabi. When I was about two, my father was working as a security guard. My mom was working in a bank and they were both kind of struggling. My dad was trying to pass his medical exams and finally did and got into medical school in Newfoundland. So then I was brought back to Canada. So I lived in Newfoundland for a couple of years while my dad was completing his residency. So I was about seven when I grew up or moved to Windsor and Windsor is where I would say is my childhood. I spent most of my time in Windsor. I went to University of Western Ontario for my undergrad degree and then I went to Osgoode Hall Law School for my law school degree. And mm-hmm. so throughout those different cities and moving around, experienced, uh, I guess, a lot of things that shaped me and made me who I am now. And then about six years of practicing law, and then I made my move into politics and was elected for the first time in 2011, and then mm-hmm. re-elected in 2014. And what made you make that move into politics? So part of it was as a student in undergrad, even though you wouldn't normally think of the University of Western Ontario as a hotbed for left-leaning progressive thinking, which is true, it's not necessarily a, a place that's the most conducive to that. I actually met a number of really, really impressive and maybe the few, the minority of professors who were very progressive. And I started formulating my ideas around social justice. Growing up as someone who faced a lot of prejudice and and discrimination, I was very sensitive to the ideas of justice and the ideas of discrimination and the unfairness that kind of exists when it comes to people who are historically marginalized. And Mm -hmm. that sensitivity made me want to be more involved in activism. So I would be involved in protests whenever there were, and that continued into law school. So I would protest whenever there were issues around uh, the anti-war or pro-peace movement or around refugees and immigrant rights, if there was issues around poverty. So I was very engaged and aware. And then I started lending my services as a law student to those same groups that I was involved with and giving them pro bono legal advice around how to organize demonstrations and how to navigate the the system in terms of what the rights were. And then as a lawyer, I continued to do that. And I stood up for broad kind of human rights issues sometimes very specific to the Sikh community, but sometimes broad speaking on issues of you know, socioeconomic barriers and, and, and discrimination. And eventually it came to the point where there was a specific issue that came up, a human rights issue facing the Sikh community. And there was mm-hmm. a, a lot of young people that were organizing around it. And we faced this barrier where we felt that the elected officials that were representing our community didn't respond. And in fact, we're working against some of our interests or our concerns. And we kind of sat together. Can I ask a, what the specific issue was? Yeah, sure, sure. It was There was a, a genocide that the Sikh community faced in 1984. And one of the perpetrators will... One of the, there was a series of commissions done into finding out why this happened and how this happened. And one of those commissions was headed by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of India, retired, Mr. Nanavati. 
And he found in his report conclusively that the the massacre of the Sikhs could not have occurred but for the help and organization of elected political figures. And that was very telling. People knew that, but his report kind of supported that. And one of those alleged to have been involved was an individual named Kamal Nath, who was a, an elected official at the time, and went on to become a very high-ranking minister. And he was attending Ontario to meet with the government and also to meet in Ottawa with the federal government. And so we were organizing a protest saying, listen, you can meet with you know various countries and that's important, but you shouldn't meet with someone who is alleged to have been involved with such a heinous genocide. And our elected officials mm-hmm. weren't re- receptive to the issue, in fact, dismissed it and told other people that this was a non-issue and a fringe issue. We learned that and we said, listen, this is something that the entire community knows. There was a commission into it and the fact that we're being disrespected by people who should know and from the, from the community that have experienced it. We kind of sat around and discussed, you know, my colleagues, my friends, uh, some other you know, politically engaged folks said, we need to make sure we have a voice at the table that's more progressive, that's more sensitive to issues of human rights. And so we were kind of discussing and brainstorming and then somehow in the room, all the eyes shifted to me and they said, we want you to do it. And I said, "Uh, you know, I'm really happy as a lawyer. I love working on these issues, but I don't see politics as a full-time gig. I I can't imagine myself doing it. I'm happy not to. So it took about six months of really aggressive persuasion. Punjabi people and South Asians are very familiar with the concept of guilt-tripping someone to do something. So finally, the guilt-tripping was successful and I Mm -hmm. caved to the pressure and decided to run. Could I ask Mm -hmm. you about the elected officials that you're speaking about? Were they from? They were also sick. Yes. Why do you think they weren't speaking on it? I don't think it's popular to. I think it could be difficult because people who speak out on issues are often deterred by the state through various things like visa denials. It's often used as a way to deter people or discourage people from speaking up on issues like this. And that's something you experienced. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just one of many people who faced visa denial as a form of suppression or of form of silencing dissent. We look in India now and see that even people within India are being charged with a very draconian, very oppressive, very colonial charge of sedition. So anyone who's dissenting against the state, recently we've seen academics, intellectuals returning their awards, their state awards, because there's a climate of intolerance across India. And we've seen it in communities where, like I said, academics and intellectuals, secular individuals. Most recently, someone like Amir Khan, who's a Bollywood star, his wife is involved in this concern around the intolerance that's growing in India. And now he just for saying that I'm concerned about the intolerance in India and I'm thinking of moving out of the country was charged with sedition as well, just for saying I want to move out of the country. So it's uh, it's not a unique thing to me, but I was the first elected official in the history of Canada to be denied a visa. And I was actually funny enough receiving, I was going to receive an award from um, a community organization in Punjab for the sick of the year. So it was kind of ironic that receiving awards <laughs> by the community in in Punjab. And they actually organized the entire yeah. event around my schedule. And I told them a particular date that was good for me. I said Christmas Day because everything shut down here in Canada. And they organized the event around me. I you know, applied for my visa well within time and I was denied to attend to receive the award. Were you given a reason mm-hmm. at all? Well, I wasn't in the initial and the, the media reports very accurately capture what the, 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 the Consulate General said. And they said that every sovereign nation has the the right to deny anyone entry into the country, which is which is the official line. I actually met with the consulate general, and he told me not to share this with other people, and I told him that I would share it. And he said two things. <laughs> mm-hmm. One, he said, if you stop talking about human rights issues in, in India and, are, and stop being critical about them, broadly, whatever the issues are, because he did note that I talked about a broad variety of concerns, including the treatment of women, the treatment of minority communities, religiously like the Christians and the Muslim community, as well as the Sikh community. If he, he said, if you stop criticizing 
the country then will consider allowing you in. And I said, well, that's not going to happen because I'm, I can't be bought by a visa. And in addition, he said, and I'd also prefer if you didn't bring this up with anyone. And I said, well, I'm also going to bring this up with people. So your listeners are now also privy to that conversation. And uh, yeah, so that's what happened. So he, he said, essentially, because of my my criticism of human rights. And I thought that's pretty telling that I'm complaining about a country's human rights track record, and which is questioning whether or not a country is really a true democracy. And then to only bolster my argument that I'm denied entry. You know, I don't have a criminal record in Canada, nor do I have one in India. And uh, there you have it. You mentioned you got into politics because you were doing a lot of work with groups that you had worked with throughout university. Yes. Because of your experience as a racialized person. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about your experience? Sure. Yeah. So I was insulated from the impacts to the, to the extent that other people, I think, feel them even more so because I had, though I had barriers based on my appearance, based on my race, based on my identity, because I looked unique and distinct. Those things still created a lot of prejudice and discrimination, but I was insulated because my father was a psychiatrist and, and doing well financially. So I think I had one level of insulation. But despite that, the fact that I felt it so in such a harsh manner, I think shows how much this can really impact people's lives. In particular, if you don't have the socioeconomic status, I think it can definitely impact even more so. So I grew up in Windsor, and that's where most of my memories are around discrimination and prejudicial treatment. Windsor is a very unique city, especially when I was growing up. It's a, it's a tough city. And instead of in other cities, I know when I talk to kids about bullying and facing you know, discrimination or racism, the way it works is kids will call you names. Well, kids definitely called me names in Windsor. And if you think about it, I was a brown-skinned kid, a boy with long hair, and my name was Jigmeet. So it wasn't you know, John or Rick or Tom. So I had three really major reasons for kids to pick on me. Mm-hmm. On top of that, in Windsor, kids would you know, pick on me and call me names, but kids would also just fight with you for looking different. So there was a very physical nature to the racism. So kids would walk up to me and just punch me for looking different. And I was a tough kid, so I'd fight back, but I never felt satisfied with just that physically. Sure, sure, I stood up for myself, but it wasn't a satisfying way to resolve this issue. Windsor also, one of the telling things about Windsor is that I remember driving or, or riding on the subway in Toronto after you know having graduated from law school, and I was a you know fairly young and successful lawyer taking the subway downtown to a court case. I was in the subway and a young girl, you know, like a little girl was kind of pointing in my direction and kind of laughing because she might have thought that the turban looked funny. And, and I'm sure to a young child who hasn't seen it before, it probably does look a bit funny. Mm-hmm. But the heartwarming moment was when the mother with the child said, oh, oh dear, it's not very polite to laugh. You know, that's his unique, you know, appearance because of his religion. So it's not nice to laugh at him for that. And I just thought that was such a sweet thing to do, you know, to teach a child that. And I thought, you know, that child's going to grow up to be very understanding and accepting of differences because her mom is so, you know, seems to be so understanding as well. In Windsor, the stark difference, it just reminded me when I, when that happened, it reminded me of what happened in Windsor where kids would, if I was walking in the mall with a friend, kids would point and laugh at me and they'd tug on the sleeve of their mom or dad and their mom and dad would look over and they would join in laughing as well. And that's kind of my experience in Windsor that, that wherever I went, mm-hmm. it wasn't that adults would protect or stand up for me, that they would join in on in that kind of discriminatory attitude. And, and it was a very painful, real way of saying, hey, you don't belong. The way you look, the way you appear to us is something that's not acceptable in our society or right. in, in this in the city. So I, that was a very mm-hmm. strong message that was sent. And I think what it does is when you face, even though I didn't face financially those barriers, but facing it in a societal level makes you definitely feel that it's such an unfair thing to go through and, and you know, why am I being singled out and why don't I feel like I belong? And the unfairness of it, I think, creates a, an awareness of and a sensitivity towards other sorts of unfairness that exist in our society. 
And I think that's why I was more receptive to and more concerned about other forms of unfairness, including you know, issues around poverty and issues of access to justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about the practice of carding? This is a government-sanctioned practice that you've been vocal on. Yeah, for sure. So carding is, put simply, police stopping individuals for no reason. They're not involved in a criminal investigation. They're not a suspect in an investigation. So stopping people for no reason and asking them information about themselves, where they're going, where they're headed to, what's their name, asking for identification, and then logging and tracking that information, storing it in a database. So what that does, it doesn't sound on the surface of it, okay, so please stop stop you, ask you some questions, and then store that information. So what's the big deal? The big deal is if you're stopped in your own community repeatedly, it's another really clear way of saying, hey, you don't belong. Just for the way you look, if you're stopped and, and you're a black or brown youth, and it's often racialized people that are stopped and often younger people that are stopped. But carding impacts you know, the community broadly. It impacts women as well. It impacts uh, you know, the entire sense of cohesion in a society, in, in a community. When you, when you have one community that's singled out and being stopped again and again, what it does send to that individual is that for the way you look and for being in your own community, you're somehow doing something wrong. And that has such a negative impact. It impacts people's sense of self-worth, their self-confidence. It also engage, it also starts to question, and that image starts to question whether they should even be involved in any sort of civic responsibilities because they think that, well, you know, my own community doesn't value me. I'm not considered worthy to be here, so why should I even participate? Maybe in things like voting, maybe in things like community meetings. So it has a very pernicious and negative impact on people. And uh, what I've called for is something that's, well within the law. In fact, this idea of stopping people arbitrarily is something that contravenes the charter anyways. We have two sections of the charter which very clearly outline that people should be free from arbitrary detention uh, under section 9 of the charter. And section 8 of the charter makes it very clear that we should individuals should be free from unreasonable search and seizure. So you shouldn't be without any reason searched and you can interpret being asked a number of questions that are personal in nature as a a form of search and being stopped by the police. And we all know that if you're racialized and you're in a situation where a police confronts you, you don't really think that you have the freedom to walk away. And so it is a form of detention. There's case law that supports that. So you have a scenario where people are having their charter rights infringed, and it also has this very negative impact on their sense of well-being in society. In all areas, it's just something that's unacceptable and needs to end. And so I called on, I noticed that city-wise, municipally, we had city councils that were struggling with the issue, trying to raise it and not really getting anywhere. We had mayors that were taking a position of ending it, then flip-flopping and saying, no, it's fine. And so it seemed to me that the city level, you know, municipalities and police forces and police boards were struggling with the issue and even police chiefs, but were not able to solve it. So I said, this is a perfect opportunity for the province to step in and provide leadership so that we can say very clearly across the province that the guidelines coming from the province are this practice is, should, be, should be ended once and for all. And I was very proud that in the end of June, last June, um, at the end of, uh, sorry, the beginning of June, at the end of our session, I stood up and gave a statement on this issue. Weeks later, the government announced that they were going to do a consultation because of mounting pressure. And I don't take all the credit. I know there's a number of amazing people that raised this issue, including the African Canadian Legal Clinic, the Law Union, mm-hmm. a number of activists, Desmond Cole shared his story. I think all these things finally amounted in putting the pressure. And I think I added that final push provincially to say the province should step up. And then most recently, just a, a month or so back, I was able to bring a, a motion in the House calling on the government to, to, in effect, make it clear that the Legislative Assembly of Ontario deems that this practice is unacceptable and should end it and should be banned in the province of Ontario. And that motion passed unanimously. 
which sent a very clear message. And during that motion, the government actually, the minister stood up, who was responsible for this file, stood up and said, okay, we will end this practice in the province. So I consider it a little bit of a victory, and I'm very honored to have mm-hmm. added my voice to it and to be a part of all the folks that put so much work in behind raising awareness and then moving towards solving this problem. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to back up for a moment. I was wondering how you ended up running for the riding you were running for and why you chose um, to run for a provincial position as opposed to a federal. Sure. So I started off actually running federal because the issues that we were talking about when it comes to the human rights issue was it was sort of a federal issue because it's an international relations issue. So I ran federally initially. And I chose a riding that we had, that I'd, I'd done a lot of work in the, the Sikh community and I'd done a lot of work as a, I was a lawyer in the Peel region and I'd done a lot of work with uh, various activist groups. So I tried to choose an area where I had the strongest ties given the fact that I had grown up in Windsor. So most of my life was in Windsor. And I chose the riding of Bramley Gormalton because it encompassed a bit of Mississauga and a bit of uh, Brampton. I was living in Mississauga at the time, so was close to the riding. And it's a community, an area that I had had a lot of experience working with in that in that area, in that region. And so that's the reason why I chose it and we chose to run federally initially. The reason why I went provincial was we came within 500 votes of winning. To put that into context, the NDP had never placed higher than a distant third with about 7% of the vote, uh, translating to about 6,000 votes mm-hmm. was, the, was the highest, the watershed, like the best we've ever done. And... I announced and our team announced at the end of March and we the campaign was basically the month of April and the election day was May 2nd. So within about 30 days, we went from 6,000 votes, which was the most the NDP ever got in that area. And by the end, on May 2nd, we got over 19,000 votes. So it was a pretty amazing feat to have more than tripled the support base. And we were excited by the momentum and thought that provincially, the elections were coming up in a couple months. I was approached by the provincial party. We had a lot of kind of humming and hawing about it and really figuring out if it was the right thing to do. And finally, there was a lot of pressure to do it, a lot of pressure from the community. They said, you know, you, you've started out on this. We want you to, we want to see you elected. There's a lot of regret because people didn't think I would do so well. And so there's a lot of people that came to me and said, we didn't know that you were so close to winning. Otherwise, we would have voted for you. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pressure from the community. A lot of the, the party really wanted me to do it. And a lot of my, um, my colleagues that we'd worked together thought this is a great opportunity for us to continue and to bring a kind of a new way of doing politics to to the legislature. And so I uh, kind of thought about it and finally made a decision. Well, prior to you running, there was quite a few SEC MPs and MPPs that had been elected that maybe didn't have as much concern for the community. How did you stay optimistic about it? And why did you think that you could bring upon change that they were maybe unable to? Well, I think the major difference was that I didn't look at this as a career. I looked at this as a great honor, uh, an amazing privilege, and not something that I wanted as the position itself as a title, but as an opportunity to do something. So when you look at something strictly as a position, then your decision making around it is going to be impacted by that. And you, you might be a bit more cautious, a bit nervous to take strong stances, and you might be really influenced by what's popular, what's not popular, and what's going to get me elected and what's not going to get me elected. I wasn't really concerned with those things. I thought, I'm going to present a fresh way of doing politics. I'm going to present issues that matter to the people. We have a team that's really highly engaged and innovative in its approach of how we can send our message out there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this based on the principles and things that I value. And we're going to do it in a way that's disruptive, that kind of challenges the way things have been done before. And if not, there's no point in me doing this. I didn't really want to run per se. It wasn't something that I was, you know, 
dreaming about, something I was hoping for. In fact, I took a major pay cut because I was a pretty successful lawyer. And so the, the salary wasn't in any way an enticement. So I thought, if we're going to do this, let's let's really make a difference. Let's try to change the, the paradigm of what people normally see of a politician and try to do things that are unique and, and, are, and are meaningful. Mm-hmm. What do you think right now in that riding or as a representative of racialized people, what do you think is the biggest issue facing people right now? So it's not the most obvious issue in terms of a social justice issue. It doesn't sound like it. But if you actually delve deeper, it really is a social justice issue. So the top issue, easily, if you go door to door in Brampton, knock on at least 15 houses, you'll easily see a trend. The number one issue people are concerned about is auto insurance, which doesn't sound like something that's very social justice or progressive. But when you look at it, auto insurance rates are highest in areas where there's the highest population of new Canadians and racialized Canadians. And it is, and it's a serious issue, particularly because those communities are the ones that have the least investment in infrastructure. So areas where you can't even use public transit as an alternative, areas where there's a high percentage of racialized and new Canadians, those are the areas where it's the most expensive to afford auto insurance. And not more expensive by 100 or $200. I'm talking about it's more expensive by 100% more. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes twice as much as other communities. So it's a major issue. It's a major fairness issue. And it's also, if you look at it, the government has consistently made policies that have benefited the insurance industry. So the insurance industry is a massive industry, very powerful, deep pockets, you know, one of the most powerful industries probably in uh, if, in Canada, but perhaps one amongst the most powerful in the world. And they have a very powerful lobby interest as well. So it's no surprise that all the decisions in the auto insurance field have all been favoring the insurance companies and cutting benefits and coverage to, to everyday people. So you have this trend where this insurance industry is gaining more and more profit at the cost of putting more and more of a weight and a burden on everyday people. And people are actually getting less coverage and protection from this product. So it's just all around a completely unfair scenario. And on top of that, you add in the discrimination based on postal codes and based on geographic location within a city. And it's just a, a complete nightmare for, for people and a, and a serious social justice issue. That's one major issue. I think in general, there seems to be consistent disregard for or neglect for the the suburbs. And Brampton has had ministers from, you know, various political parties, conservative and liberal. They've had sitting MPPs. And if you look at the funding in the Brampton area, in the suburbs in general, they're underfunded. Peel is one of the most underfunded based on its population. Mm -hmm. And you have no investments in infrastructure. You have no significant investments in in education. And it's a high needs, high growth area. So it's just a really overall sense of not caring about a particular community. Why do you think there's a lack of investment? Because when it comes to the election cycle, that area seems to be highly visited by all the parties. And I think it's a twofold thing. I think up till recently, politicians just were, their role was just to show up and Mm -hmm. just to be present at an event. And and we're hoping people demand more from that, that it's not enough to just show up, but it's important for them to advocate, to stand up for it. So it's not enough to say, I, I went and attended your event and I connected with you on that level, which is important. But it's more important that the elected representative actually fights for that infrastructure funding, that actually stands up and demands a fair share. And I don't think that's been done. I think people have been taken for granted and their votes and their, their I guess, representation has been taken for granted. And it's not... And it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you, so in the last the federal elections, there's mm-hmm. four Sikh ministers, but other minorities don't seem to be represented as much as the Sikh population does. What do you think? What do you think people can do to get other minorities represented equally as well? Well, I think, I mean, one, I have to, even though it's you know, not my party, I do acknowledge that it is it is very 
promising to see the first gender parity caucus mm. in the history of Canada. I mean, that was a, that's a huge achievement, and I'm not going to hesitate to to compliment the government on that. I think it's also worthy of note that there were you know more racialized people in in cabinet than before. So there's you know Aboriginals, there was uh, individuals, marginalized communities like people with, with disabilities made it into the cabinet, as well as uh, people from South Asian backgrounds. But I agree that to really reflect Canada, we need more diversity amongst that diversity. So though I'm really, really happy to see the four sick MPP or MPs that have been made cabinet members. Uh, I think it's important for us to also look at other communities like the African-Canadian community and ensure that there's representation there as well. And uh, also Asians in general, I think that uh, that would be something that's important to reflect because of Canada's demographic. I think in general, whatever the field is, whether it's politics, whether it's in you know positions of power, broadly speaking, whether it's in the police, in the education, you want the, your representatives or the people working in those fields to reflect the communities they serve. And so Canada is a very diverse country and, and our representations re- should reflect that. Mm-hmm. One topic, when I talk about doing politics differently, we had to do a lot of things differently with the fact that we only had 6,000 people voting for the NDP. So we had to do some really unique things. So one of the things we did, we identified that women weren't involved in politics very much, okay. nor were young people. So we actually strategically, I made sure that my campaign manager was a woman so that we didn't say, hey, women are important. We actually showed it by having a position of power filled by a woman so that people came into the office seeing a woman calling shots. Mm-hmm. And I think... That encourages a lot of women. So you, you'll notice in all our campaigns, we have a lot of women involved, a lot of young women involved. Normally, you don't see that in campaign offices. Yeah. We also made it really family friendly. So no alcohol. Uh, most campaign offices, you know, at the end become kind of a drinking place. And I think families feel a bit uncomfortable being around alcohol and having that type of climate. It's not as conducive to having kids there. Yeah. So we did that. We also um, made it, made the, the food strictly vegetarian okay. and not for a spiritual reason. But really, the the underlying sick reason for vegetarianism, one of the reasons is it's inclusive because you can be a strict Muslim who eats only halal, but vegetarian food is also considered halal. Or if you could be um, from a Jewish background and eat only kosher food, mm-hmm. uh, vegetarian food is also kosher. There's a Hindu population in the community, and a lot of Hindus are actually strict vegetarians, and there are some Sikhs who are strict vegetarians. So having a vegetarian strict diet in the office also encouraged kind of that inclusivity, and I think it made people feel more comfortable. Kids knew that there would be options for them. Parents knew that they wouldn't have to worry about their kids yeah. figuring out and deciphering, is that food halal or not halal, or is it this or that? So we, we implemented these like specific strategies and they really worked well to, to engage a lot of people. And did you find social media made a difference with young people as well? Yeah, so we, we had a really aggressive, I think everyone's doing it now, but back in 2011 when we first did it, it was very young and a lot of people hadn't really used social media to the extent that we did. So we made a lot of cool videos, we shared them, we had a lot of cool uh, graphics to share and kind of created, we created a virtual lawn sign. So people take lawn signs on their actual lawn. Mm-hmm. We created a lawn sign that you would put up in your social media space. So put up on your Facebook or put up, so everyone started sharing this lawn sign that was on their social media page. Mm -hmm. And it was a cool way of, I mean, people have done this now a lot and it's been really common. But when we first started these ideas, it were really unique. And so I think it built up a cred for us as social media savvy kind of campaign and the team. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well. And lastly, before we finish, I know you said you were advocating for women's rights. Mm-hmm. Do you want to maybe speak about that in terms of Canada and how you how you find or how you advocate from here and what you find the issues to be here? Yeah, for sure. So I think right off the bat, violence against women is not something that's limited to other countries. It's still um, an issue that impacts people here in Canada. Mm-hmm. The root causes of violence against any community and communities that are more victimized by violence, I think 
many of the roots lie in the imbalance of power. And so with respect to women, we still know that there is a huge gap in in wage parity, that women are paid less than men. And women uh, of color are paid even less. Exactly. Uh, another, and women of color are paid even less. If you look at uh, temporary job agencies, which is one of the you know, worst and growing issues that's affecting people who who are in Canada and it's become the new norm where you can't get a full-time job, you only can get a temporary part-time job. And those jobs are often offered only through an agency. Mm-hmm. Those agencies uh, are now proliferating and growing over the past decade. They've seen a, a exponential growth. They're not well or, uh, regulated. And more, moreover, the people that are actually getting precarious or, you know, uncertain employment are most often racialized people and most often women. So, mm-hmm. These are the areas where I'm really focusing in on if we want to address you know, imbalances of power, um, unfairness in the system. One of those areas is employment and the biggest issue facing racialized people and women particularly, the biggest issue that's facing them is temporary employment through temporary job agencies. So I've, I actually just spoke on the issue yesterday as well. It's a major issue for me and I'm working hard to find a way for us to make that system far more fair and make it easier to hire people in a permanent basis. Right now, it's easier to hire someone temporarily than it is to hire someone permanently. It's unacceptable. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to episode three of Word. Find more episodes on our Facebook page where you can also find a link to our iTunes feed. Thanks for listening.